0: Welcome to Anko Farm. I'm your host, John Bizarra. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Anko Farm at the Bill Gaten College Pharmacy. It is the morning of February 4th, and um, we have a new drug to talk about. Uh, and just for just for kicks, we'll also talk a little bit of medchem and pharmacokinetics and some of my favorite pharmaceutical sciences. Uh, so yesterday on uh, on F- uh, on February 3rd, the FDA approved. Uh, tapotnib, or Teapotnib, brand name uh, Tebmetco, and I'll be honest with you, uh, the first thing I saw when this drug was approved is I looked to see if there was a teapot emoji, because uh, I would have pronounced this teapotnib. Maybe it's tepotnib, Probably tepotnib, not teapot. You wouldn't put teapot in a drug name. Anyway, uh, tapotnib was approved for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer uh, with the MET exon 14 skipping alteration. Which is where, uh, you know, when you're uh, when you're transcribing the protein from the gene, you just kind of skip over exon 14, uh, which completely changes uh, what the protein does. It would be a little bit like copying a sentence that said, um, you know, "I will not lie," and you copied all the words but the word "not." Uh, completely changes the meaning of the sentence. So when you skip over that exon-14, completely changes what the protein does, making it uh, constituently active. Uh, this is a very similar drug and a very similar approval to catmatinib, which was a uh, brand name, uh Brecta, which was approved last spring for the same indication, met exon-14 skipping mutation metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, they're both approved, of course, based off of, uh, of course... We've really shifted the bar. We, yeah, of course, uh, they're approved based on uh, the surrogate marker of uh, response rate. All right. So, I mean, really the biggest difference between these two drugs has to do with the Henderson-Hasselbalch equation. And that's somewhat of a joke, but somewhat real. So we're just going to compare these two drugs uh, on the podcast today. So from a pharmacology standpoint, they're fairly similar. Uh, you know, they're approved for MET exon-14 skipping mutations, but they have activity against uh, CMET. Uh, which is, um, you know, not quite as common a, a receptor, tyrosine kinase transmembrane receptor, uh, as some of our epidermal growth factor receptors, uh, but it is there. It has um, a natural, maybe not a natural, but uh, a, a very well associated ligand in hepatic growth factor. Uh, now, there are other ligands uh, and other things that can lead to met activation, but hepatocyte growth factor is a big one, so it should not be surprising that if a drug uh, blocks a kinase that is stimulated by hepatocyte growth factor, that you might see some hepatotoxicity, and in fact, you also might not be surprised to expect that this drug is being studied for hepatocellular carcinoma, which is true. Uh, It appears that uh, catmatinib is a little bit more uh, selective uh, than tapotinib and a little bit better affinity for C-Met with an IC50 that is lower 0.13 uh, nanomolar or I think it's nanomolar compared to an IC50 of 3 or for tapotinib now that may or may not make a big difference clinically from a MedChem standpoint and really this is this is the big difference between the drugs uh, catmatinib has a PKA of 0.9 so a very low or acidic PKA which means it's probably going to be more soluble in an acidic environment, like uh, the stomach. Uh, and in fact, capmatinib's solubility is, is okay. It's not great. It's okay uh, at gastric pH. And incre- the, the solubility goes down as pH increases. Um, and so it has a, a very fast uh, absorption time. So the T max, the time until you get the maximum concentration after a dose is one to two hours. So pretty quick, uh, pretty quick uh, absorption. Uh, and because it is, uh, you know, that absorption is dependent on acidity, uh, PPIs do c- decrease the bioavailability by about 25% with capatinib. With now, 25% decrease in AUC is probably not enough to be clinically significant. Um, I mean, you know, you're cutting a quarter of the dose off of that. So in the long run, is that clinically significant? You know, we don't know at this point, obviously. Uh, we do have some some experience with this, so for example, the drug nilotinib is the best example I can think of. Uh, We know from, you know, the data in the PI, which come from very short studies that are looking at just uh, pharmacokinetics, uh, that acid-suppressive therapy decreases the the bioavailability absorption, total exposure of nilotinib. Now, some retrospective studies, I think there are at least two, uh, now they're retrospective, so they're not, you know, perfect quality, uh, suggest, carefully worded when I say suggest, suggest that that doesn't have uh, an impact in the long run, uh, that that PPI, nilotinib interaction. And there's a suggestion. Now, CML is a very different disease than metastatic non smell cell lung cancer. We are pretty good at treating CML with TKIs, uh, so maybe we can get by with less bioavailability there. Whether or not that's the case here, we don't know. But anyway, catmatinib, acidic PKA, very soluble, or much more soluble. Uh, in the acidic environment, uh, so it's absorbed pretty quickly. Now, topotnib has a pKa of 9.5, and just, you know, from what I remember, the henderson hasbach equation says, you know, if your pKa is 9.5, if that drug is at a pH of 9.5, 50% ionized, 50% unionized, and that's going to have to, you know, the ionized is going to be soluble, uh, and therefore, if it's soluble in solution, it can be absorbed, all right? So, uh, as opposed to still in the tablet form. So, tapotinib has a basic PKA, a basic, uh, and of course the gastric contents of our stomach is acidic. So, its Tmax is 8 to 12 hours, 12 hours without food, 8 hours with food, and food increases the absorption 1.6 fold, uh, which is a pretty big, you know, it, you know, it's more than a doubling, you know, a one-fold increase would be a doubling of absorption. Uh, so, tapotinib is taken with food. It has a later peak because it it, it, it's not going to be absorbed in the stomach because it's, it's not going to be that soluble. It's going to take a long time until and you get into the, the very uh, large uh, surface area of the small intestine where, where most of the drug is likely absorbed. So tapotinib, there's no PPI effect on absorption, whereas ca- catmatinib, there's a small effect. And tapotinib needs to be taken with food. Catmatinib does not. Uh, and this segues nicely into the dosing differences. Tapotinib is 450 milligrams once daily with food. Uh, it's it's uh, taken once daily. It has a long half life, 32 hours, uh, whereas capmatinib is 400 milligrams bid with or without food. Uh, but it's taken bid because it's got a shorter half life. Capmatinib's half life is 6.5 hours. So here we see just the, the fundamental you know medicinal chemistry differences of the drugs. With uh, for example, uh, you know the the half life, longer half life. That dipotinib has longer half life. It's taken once a day. Uh, catmatinib is more acidic, faster bioavailability, and we'll see maybe that has something to do, or faster absorption, maybe that has something to do uh, with the toxicity. I'll also point out you know, the reason we're doing this is someone is going to have a choice of which of these drugs to use, and uh, you know, both of them, the dosage form, the default dose is two tablets, either once a day for tapotinib or two tabs twice a day for capmatinib. So tapotinib is gonna be a little easier to start with because it's just two tablets a day. Capmatinib is four tablets a day divided. Uh, With capmatinib, you know, there are two dosage forms available, 200 and 150 milligrams. If you don't tolerate the 400 BID, you can go down to 300 BID. For tapotinib, there's only one dosage form, that's the 225 milligram tablet. So, you know, you can go from 450 to 225. and that's really the only dose reduction that you could do. Now, conceivably, you could do an alternating day of 450, 225, because it does have a long half-life. Over time, you're probably going to get pretty pretty uh, stable uh, average uh, city-state concentration. So, uh, but, it, but, you know, we don't have that, that data. Um, from a toxicity standpoint, very similar as far as the big toxicities in the warnings precautions section. Interstitial lung disease... with tapatinib, which is kind of on par with what you see with all the TKIs that work in lung cancer. Capatinib, 4.5%, a little higher end of what you see or worry about. Um, Hepatotoxicity is seen with both these agents. Seems to be similar numbers in both with regards to AST, ALT, elevation, uh, both all grades and grades 3 and 4. A little interesting, there's some discordance and some differences in the wording in different sections of the PI for both these drugs. Um... Uh, embryo-fetal toxicity can be seen with both of these, uh, and then the only the only uh, warning precaution that has that's different is it there is a warning for photosensitivity based on uh, based on uh, some some preclinical suggestions and evidence. Now, when you look at the most common toxicities, you know it you know you see a lot more edema, or it looks like you see a lot more edema with tepotinib. You really can't make that statement because we're doing the, the dangerous cross-trial comparison. Seventy percent edema. Uh, with dapatinib versus 52% with capmatinib. Uh, you do see more nausea and vomiting. It appears with cap capmatinib, uh, 44% nausea versus 27% nausea, worse with capmatinib. 2.7% grade three or worse capmatinib. So that's nausea bad enough that maybe you have to be hospitalized. Uh, vomiting 28% worse with capmatinib versus 13% with dapatinib. So you know capmatinib is is more than twice as likely. It appears to cause vomiting. 2.4% uh, grade three or four, so that's vomiting bad enough that you're hospitalized. Now, nausea is often a peak-dependent toxicity. Look at the the risk of you know nausea and vomiting with IV bolus doxorubicin compared to an equivalent dose of liposomal doxorubicin or or a 24-hour infusion of doxorubicin. Big peak, big nausea, typically. All right, uh, so that nausea and vomiting. Uh, uh, preponderance or, or, you know, the more of that, that GI toxicity we see ca- in in terms of nausea may very well have to do with that faster absorption and faster peak. Now, from an efficacy standpoint, again, this is even more dangerous than doing the cross-trial comparison for toxicity. Uh, both studies uh, that, uh, that looked at these two drugs separated patients by treatment-naive and prior treatment just reviewing for catmatinib, which we've talked about on the podcast, for the treatment naive folks, there was a, a overall objective response rate of 68%, and for treatment naive, 41%, with a median duration of response that was longer in the treatment naive folks, more than 12 months, versus about 10 months in treatment naive. And at the time, I said, you know, it looks like this drug works better in the upfront setting, treatment naive, as opposed to in the treatment, uh, people who've already had treatment, which makes very very good sense we see that over and over again in drugs. Uh, you know, re- overall response rates are typically better in the first line to any drug than in the second line, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, what's a, what I didn't uh, maybe fully appreciate here, and I think I, I mentioned it, is, you know, you only had 28 patients in the treatment, naive. have uh, cohort with catpatinib versus 69% in the prior treatment. So that confidence interval of that really impressive 68% response rate in treatment naive folks is huge. It's 48 to 84. So big, big confidence interval. Okay. So small N, maybe it's not quite that good. Could be better. All right. Now, if we look at Tipotinib, our newly approved agent, they've got 69 patients in their treatment naive cohort and 83 in their prior treatment cohort response rates, 43% and 43%, the same regardless uh, no trend of better response if the drug was given in the first line setting versus after. Median duration of response, 11 months and 11 months if you round. So again, no suggestion that uh that it's it's better if given earlier versus giving after prior treatment. Now, is it as simple that Capatinib uh, just works better up front than tepotinib? Maybe, but I, I kind of think probably no. I mean, let's just just blindly read off the objective response rates. We have four different cohorts, two drugs, two cohorts that are treatment-naive, two cohorts that are uh, prior treatment. 43%, 43%, 68%, 41%. One of these is not like the other, and it's the one with the smallest N. It's the capmatinib treatment-naive cohort of of just 28 patients. so, I mean, if I had to guess, just just like, you know, if you were running simulations, you'd say that if, you know, you you ended up, uh, you know, enrolling another 30 or 50 patients in first-line treatment with catmatinib, that the overall objective response rate, as you added more patients, would trend towards 40%, you would think. Now, we'd have to see more data, something to watch for. Perhaps catmatinib really does work a lot better uh, in the first-line setting. And again, we don't, um, you know you don't jump to the conclusion that matnib is what you use in the first line and tapotinib is what you use after you fail catmatinib. We don't have any data that either one of these agents would be effective after failure uh, of the other since they they, they work very similarly. Uh, and then finally, looking at their metabolism, very similar, both metabolized by cyp 34 and prone to drug interactions. There we would think uh, tapotnib is also metabolized by CYP2C8. Uh, both are, uh, are P-glycoprotein inhibitors. Not strong P-glycoprotein inhibitors, but they do. Uh, they both increase the exposure of P-glycoprotein substance by about 50%. Uh, we know that uh, Topotinib increases the AUC of dabigatran by 50%, so your your 150 milligram BID dose is, is more now like 225 milligrams BID. Increased risk of GI bleeding. Uh, catmatinib increases the AUC of Digoxin by about 47%, so your you know, your 125 micrograms daily is now more like uh, well, something higher than that. I can't do that math off the time of my head. And the PI does recommend caution with narrow therapeutics index P-glycoprotein drugs. Uh, what are those drugs? Well, I don't know off the top of my head. The bigotran, digoxin, uh, but if I see those things in a patient with more than uh, just the TK, I'm going to take a, a good hard look at that. And if you're a prescriber, uh, you know, ask your ask your ask your pharmacist to look into that for you. That's what we do. That's what we love to do. That's why we're here. Uh, we love it. Live for it. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Appreciate uh, all the listeners and comments. You can follow me on Twitter at pharmdeanip, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.